You're listening to the Yoga Inspiration Podcast with me, your host, Kino McGregor. I created this series to keep you inspired to get on the mat every day so that you can practice yoga and change your world, starting from the inside out, one breath at a time. Thanks so much for listening. Your support means everything to me. Hi, everyone. It's Kino here. You're listening to the Yoga Inspiration Show. This episode is an interview and conversation with my fellow yogis, Henry and Veronica. We dive into the discussion of yoga lineage, mental health, as well as perfectionism in yoga. I hope you enjoy this conversation and leave with some tidbits of inspiration for your own journey. Hi. Hi. Hi, Kino. Super. And hi, everyone. And um, I'm just going to let everyone know it's the first time we've done this. So let me just welcome everyone, as well as you two, to the very first ever live podcast on OMSTARS. So this is super exciting. And I'm super excited to be sharing this with um, Henry and Veronica and also with all of you. So I figured I'd just let everyone kind of have a roadmap of what we're going to be doing and having a chat about here. So first, uh, everyone, thanks for tuning in. And then if there are any questions that come up that you'd like to ask uh, Henry and Veronica, please feel welcome to type them into the chat. Please keep yourselves on mute and stay as engaged as you want in the chat. And then after we've kind of chatted a little bit, then I'll cycle back into your questions and see if we can get some of those in as well. And uh, otherwise, uh, we can kind of jump right in. How does that sound, Tony and Veronica? Can we jump in? Sounds good. Sounds good. I, I okay. didn't realize this was the first time we were trying it live, so <laughs> yeah, happy to be the guinea pigs here. Yeah, no, thank you. I mean, it's something we wanted to do because I was doing, so I was kind of like doing these Zoom talks and then I was just like, why don't we invite everyone to join? Because then we can actually get real people's questions rather than me imagining people's questions. And I felt like it would be so yeah. much more live and interactive and look, here it is. So here we all are. So let me introduce you to everyone before we uh, jump in. So first, I'll just say it again. And hi, everyone, and welcome to the Yoga Inspiration Show. I'm here with Henry and Veronica, who are two of my favorite people in the, you could say, the yoga world, the wellness world. Those of you, some of you might already know Henry, who is a really awesome yoga teacher on OMSTARS. He's the creator of the new specialty course on OMSTARS, Henry Yoga, the progressive practice evolution, and also teaching some really awesome live classes for us that maybe some of you have joined. And we're also joined with Veronica, who is a coach for highly, highly sensitive and subtle and a subtle energy guide. And they are joining us together. And I just welcome both of you and welcome and thanks for joining. Also, we're married. Oh, and they're married. <laughs> Very exciting. <laughs> I've only ever done one podcast interview with my husband and it was very fun and he didn't realize that it was being recorded so <laughs> i don't know if we've done this before. i think this we've is the first time this that we've done one together um, as well really how cool well thanks for coming on together that's that's so huh. that's so awesome i think one of the things that we like to take everyone through on or i like to take everyone through on this uh, talk series is kind of to dial it all the way back to the student's journey so would you maybe each individually share kind of how you came into the intersection of yoga and how that intersection led to the two of you coming together as well. 
Sure. Sure. Well, you started practicing yoga first, so why don't you tell <laughs> your story first? <laughs> first, I just want to say um, thank you, Kino, for having us on together, and I'm really excited to to be here. And thanks everyone who's who's tuning in live and and who's listening on the recorded version. So. My yoga journey actually started when I was a, a tween. I was, I think, maybe around 11, and I'm the youngest of three, and my oldest sister uh, took me to a yoga class, and at that time, I was really involved in competitive gymnastics, and she took me to a yoga class that was a, a Hatha class, and I went with her. And I was like, this is, this is yoga. And I ended up getting really relaxed and just kind of falling asleep the whole time to the point where my sister was like tapping me and saying, you're snoring, you're snoring. (laughs) And I didn't, um, at that time really understand the, the profoundness of the yoga practice. I feel like at that time, it just, it, it kind of planted the seed in me but it didn't really hook me. And as my life went on, um, I started to have a lot of challenges with mental health. And so um, I, you know, I started self-harming when I was in high school and then I went on to college and I was really on this path of seeking of like, what can help me to come back to a place of home within myself that will allow me to be in this human body and and thrive in this world. And so in college, I remember driving and I saw this sign at a strip mall for hot yoga. And I had never, I didn't know anyone else who practiced hot yoga and I had never done it myself, but something in me compelled me to like, okay, let's, let's just try this. And I went to a class and I remember going there with full sweatpants, like long sleeve. I set up in the back corner. I think there was like aluminum lining the walls. And I remember doing it and feeling like, wow, this is so extremely difficult. And and kind of like, I, I can't do this. And I actually remember I before the class was over, I left. And the teacher was like, no, no, come back. That was totally beyond me. I left my mat. I left the small bottle of water I had and I left and I said, F this, I'm not coming back. And the next day when I woke up, I felt in my body such an invigoration that I hadn't had since I was a child. And language is not adequate to describe how I was feeling. And I, I, I was really sore and I was like, wow, I haven't felt this since I was in, you know, those days that I was really a kid in gymnastics and, and being in my body and connecting that sense of play. So I, I went back and I kept going back. It was still really difficult. And I had to overcome a lot of stories in my head of like, I can't do this. I can't stay in the room. And slowly over time, it had this cumulative effect of showing me what I was capable of. So there was kind of this, this, this titration and um, yeah, that's how, that's how the, the yoga journey got started for me. I became a teacher in 2009 and 
fast forward, I ended up, I'm from California. I went to school in, in California and I ended up moving to New York. And when I was teaching in, um, in New York, Henry and I actually met in, in a class. And that's, that's kind of what happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And my story is, um, it, it shares some level of overlap there, but also kind of different. Uh, I came to the yoga practice because I had been an athlete growing up also. Similar sport, kind of like gymnastics, but in water. I was a springboard diver. And I actually dove in college competitively. And this summer, in between my junior and senior year of college, uh, I went to New York to do an internship, trying to get ready for adult life and no longer had access to diving boards or my coach. So one of my friends who had been a teammate of mine and was living in New York suggested that I try yoga. And I had never done it before. And I think I, I've heard a lot of stories of particularly men in the yoga space say, I was so resistant to yoga. Like, that's not for me. It's not strong enough. It's not masculine enough. I didn't have that resistance at all. I, I heard about it and I thought, this sounds really cool. Like, something where I can move my body. It's a balance of flexibility and strength from a physical standpoint. I wasn't too aware or even really interested in the other benefits at the time, but that was enough to get me in there. And even from the very first class that I took, which was at a New York sports club, nothing special. Um, I could tell that there was a, a profound mental effect as well. And that, that really hooked me. I kept going back um, and very quickly, uh, I was exploring different teachers, kind of following my favorites around New York, despite the inconvenience of not going to the New York sports club that was right around the corner. Um, and I found my way to a Bikram hot yoga studio. And that's where I really, really got sort of um, obsessed with my practice. Uh, that was in 2000. Well, I started practicing in 2010. I was doing Bikram yoga basically every day by 2012. And, um, and like Veronica said, we, we met in a hot yoga class at some point. She was actually one of my many teachers. Um, she was teaching a 6.30 a.m. class three times a week, much to her dismay. And I, at the time, had an office job uh, working in advertising in New York. So that was the only time I could go and be sure that I could get my practice in every day, which was so important to me. That's so awesome. I really love that you were her student in that class. Yeah. So how did it happen? Like, did you naturally and organically start hanging out together? Or how did you transition from being the student that was interested in Bikram? Like, what's the story of the spark that lit this beautiful connection? Right. That's a little bit of a taboo subject, right? The, the teacher and student relationship. And it's oh, very think, rare, actually, that it's in this yeah. dynamic. You know, we often hear in the yoga world the opposite dynamic where, you know, the man is the teacher and then there's a student. And so this is, I think it's an interesting, interesting discussion and a flip of what is usually like the stereotype of that, that dynamic. Yeah, that's true. And I wonder if maybe that is part of what made it work better because there's like, we don't necessarily fall into that very stereotypical power dynamic there. Um, and I also think it's important to, to note that, you know, even though she was teaching the class, like we also would be students in, in classes together. So it, it felt more like, I don't know, she was definitely my teacher and I was learning from her, but we were also kind of at the same peer level. Yeah. Um, so at that time, it was, you know, I was in, in a relationship that was starting to unravel and 
it was, it was a very difficult transition time period. And I remember Henry coming to class and I was like, who is this? Who is this guy? Who is this guy? Like comes and practices every day in these little short shorts and he has his little tote bag. Like what's, what's his deal? And I remember asking other people at the studio, like, what's the deal with Henry Winslow? Like, what do you, what do you know about him? And, um, through just being in the studio together and taking classes together and, and him being in, in, in the classes that I was, was facilitating, we developed a, a, a friendship and I would walk with him to his, to his job that was close to the studio. And that's how we started to, to get to know each other. Eventually the relationship that I was in ended and I ended up moving to Austin, Texas which was totally not in, not in the plan. And we started a long distance relationship. Yeah. Yeah. And that long distance relationship did not last that long because then I had been looking for a reason to leave New York. And I said, you know what? I want to move to Texas. Let's, let's do it. I really feel you on the long distance relationship. You know, my husband and I had a long distance relationship for I don't know, a few years and it was really difficult. You know, it was not just three hours difference. It was like six or seven hours difference sometimes and the whole Atlantic ocean between us. So I get that whole, like, let's just leave the city and go over to where you are. I, I really understand that pull. So I have a question for both of you about Bikram. Now, I know that now many people who are tuning into this have might have even watched that Bikram um, documentary series and, you know, or sure. heard or read about him. And I have personally never taken a Bikram class, but I, so I'm very, I'm very interested in kind of the appeal and also the schism between kind of what, like, how do you feel now looking back at those days versus where you are now? And what's your relationship to that practice now, all these years later, and in hindsight of everything that's kind of come to light? Yeah, that's a, that's a big question and an important one. Um, you know, I think Veronica can, pro can probably speak to this with a little bit more uh, personal connection than I can, because I have loved that practice and I have been very dedicated to it, but I've never personally encountered Bikram the man. So it's very easy for me to separate the teacher from the teachings, so to speak. Um, but um, as I reflect on it, what I, what I find like in my soul searching around this topic is that it seems like there is no corner of the yoga world that is, has been spared from this unfortunate kind of um, almost like cultic um, abuse of power. And what I take away from that is not so much like uh, a, a giving up on, on the sacredness of yoga so much as a taking back of like the individual power of the practice. And we have to be able to be discerning. It's very um, tempting, especially, you know, when you look at very traditional yoga, which is kind of patriarchal in a sense of like handing down the practice from person to person um, to to acknowledge, you know, the roots and the history of the practice, but also appreciate that there is a cultural exchange happening here and it's okay to adapt your practice to modern times. That's my personal feeling on it. Yeah, this is, to echo what Henry said, I don't feel like there is any corner of, of the yoga community that is free from this type of abuse of power. And 
for me, this was a practice that really helped to help to change and, and save my life. It wasn't the only thing, but this was a significant factor that came to me when I was a young person in, in college. And I attended teacher training in 2009 when I was very young. I think I was like 23 years old. And going through that training, it was a, a, a long training. I think it was like 10 weeks. I had a really great experience. I met a lot of different types of people from all over the world. It was one of the most difficult things that I've ever done in my life. And there were many times where I felt like I really, I want, I want to leave, not because of anything that had happened in my relationship with Bikram, but because of the, how difficult that the, the training was and, and staying up so late and doing all these, these practices and how mentally and physically taxing it was. But this is not to say that other people had not had a different experience in a more complicated and abusive relationship and harmful relationship with, with Bikram. Um, this was a practice that I taught for many years and that I practiced for many years. And, you know, where it is in my life right now, with everything that has happened this year in 2020, this has been an opportunity to reassess my relationship uh, with my practice, with, with yoga, and just in general with, with life. And do I teach it now? No. Do I practice it now? No. Are there some asanas from that series that I have in my sadhana and, and in my practice today? Has it impacted me? Yes. So I do feel that there with that it is very multifaceted and complex. And this is only, you know, I can only speak from, from my experience with it, but I know that there are many other people who have had different experiences with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, I think there's like, there's a, a common or like a, a deeper truth there around a lot of what people are wrestling with these days. And that's that everybody wants to find like this, like absolute black or white answer of something is good or bad, mm -hmm. or there's a very clean explanation. But the truth is, as 2020 has shown us, things are chaotic. There isn't always like a very obvious, like tie a bow around it answer for everything. And I think part of having a yoga practice and applying it to your everyday life is being okay in that place of uncertainty and, um, and finding your own personal like answer and truth around these difficult questions. I think to, to echo what, what Henry said of, of having this, you know, people and situations not being either good or bad, but really being in this gray area as a practitioner, as a student, it is um, also up to us to be very discerning about who we choose to share space with and to, to learn from. And even in those spaces of learning, ask ourselves, okay, is this something that I want to, that feels resonant with me in my body that I want to integrate into, into my life? And also as teachers, it is important to know how we are presenting, know these positions of power that we hold and really go into this with a sense of 
of humility with this person has chosen to, to learn from me, to be guided from me, to share space with me. And how can I facilitate a, a healing um, environment? Yeah, no, thank you so much for that. I feel there's so much there. I want to kind of dive into a little bit more. So maybe we can start with this idea of finding the, 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 the desire to find absolutes, you know, to speak in these definitive, this is 100% good, you should always speak in this way, or you should never do this in that way. And I feel that definitely in the yoga world, this comes from, uh, you know, in not necessarily the traditional yoga world, but kind of our contemporary yoga space and very much online, people are looking for, what should I do? What should I do? What's the way I can, you know, honor yoga's roots? What's the way that I can create a new path forward? And they just want to almost be told, do this, do these, almost have like a checklist, do these three things and everything will be good. And then it's not always, it's not always the case. So this is a, a situation where, for example, some people who say they want to, you know, honor yoga's roots, then they point to uh, teachers of South Asian descent or Indian teachers. But we're in the situation, and I think both of us, I come from Lashtanga tradition, where we have a lineage with an Indian teacher at the head of the lineage that was problematic. So by pointing back to that lineage, we come up against the patriarchal kind of hierarchical guru shisha model and all of the issues with that. So then, well, do we no longer point back to yoga's roots in India? And if not, then where do we point to? I think that just really uh, illustrates uh, the, the kind of schism uh, about finding absolute answers. We should always do this, but in this case, it's no longer good. So we have to find something new, but then that new thing is also not really absolute. So that agency, I think the question of agency, and what's come up in so many discussions is how to embrace the traditional roots of yoga while kind of updating the guru shisha model, you know, the guru disciple model. Do you have any thoughts on how that is as pragmatically possible to simultaneously kind of honor the long tradition of what, what's called, you know, the guru parampara, where we learn directly from the teacher and honor that lineage, while at the same time moving into kind of, you know, an updated version without kind of imperializing what is a, a sacred tradition within India. I, I, I sit with that all the time and feel like, mm -hmm. gosh, I really, I'm, I'm genuinely unsure day by day. Yeah. It, that's a, it's a really difficult question. And, um, you know, I was, I was sitting in an, in an online lecture recently about the Hatha Yoga Pradipika and the teacher of it said essentially the same thing, but he took a harder stance on it. And he was, he was saying, look, everybody's talking about how, you know, yoga needs to be personal and we need to learn from everywhere and eschew the, the old guru paradigm. But in fact, that actually is colonialism. And he was saying, absolutely do not do that. Where I differ a little bit there is that I believe there's a difference between acknowledging and honoring the past and blind compliance with it. I think it's possible to have a respect for the tradition and the respect for the roots of something and still sit with yourself and decide things have changed and I'm ready to make an intentional departure from that original path. And, you know, the same, I think there's a, a corollary we can make to everything that's happening with, for example, you know, race relations in the United States. Sometimes you hear people say, don't talk about race, that's divisive. Um, you know, we have to be in a, in a colorblind world. So I don't see color, but that's for many reasons that I'm sure most of the listeners here are, are well aware, it's very problematic because if we want to change something, we actually have to acknowledge 
what has happened in the past. We can't just pretend that we're already at this place that's perfect. Um, that's the difference, you know, between like equality and, and inequality and inequity. We're actually acknowledging what we what we see in the past and where what it what merit was there in bringing us to where we are now. But now we can make a an intentional change. It also sounds like you're describing, you know, one of the core issues in yoga, which is avidya, ignorance. So how can we work on something which we, that remains in ignorance? So if we have avidya, which, you know, it translates as the absence of knowledge, and that's understood to be kind of the core knot that ties us into, you know, all of our suffering. So how can we get past something if we remain ignorant to it? So this idea of bringing it to the light, I think, is a, is a really wonderful idea to step into. So. I'm, I do have a, like a secondary thought about that, which is, again, this absolute, these, these notions of absolutely follow this path, absolutely follow that path. I feel it's on two level, on one level, it's a complete um, like divestiture of, of, of agency. So if someone says do this and then you do that, then you're essentially trading one absolute for another, one authoritarian idea for another authoritarian idea. So we've just flipped the switch, but the power dynamic is still the same. And the second thing is to, and this is something that um, like the Dalai Lama was famous of saying is don't like, don't take me as your teacher on the first, the first time you meet me, you think I'm famous. Don't take me as a teacher, spend time with me for a long time. And in fact, then after 10 years, if you still think I'm a good person, you still think I'm, my teaching has value. And if you look at the people who've been practicing with me for 40 years and you like how they look, then yeah. you can uh, only then, then you can call me your teacher. But until then, please don't call me a teacher because I'm nothing to you. You don't know me. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's something that, you know, I think uh, can, can um, encourage agency on the part of the student while honoring the tradition and honoring a really important part of the tradition that I feel in the West, we kind of disregard, you know, we see the, the charismatic image of a guru and it's this thing, immediate elevation on a pedestal immediately. This person is a saint. I'm going to, you know, follow them completely and give up everything and, you know, jump into this full force. When, if we look at the tradition, that's not like, that's not the tradition, but the tradition is go and be a student for many years. And then after that time, and during that time, you'll go through your process and then, you know, and then something will happen. But, you know, so, so I guess, I guess my, I guess my question in, in, in that is, you know, in this wide world of yoga teachers, how do you find a teacher? And do either of you right now have a teacher? I guess before we move on to the specifics of that question, I do want, want to kind of rewind and go back to the previous question and say, Henry and I are not of the ancestry that yoga comes from. And for folks like us, I do feel that it is important to acknowledge where yoga comes from, which is from India, South Asia, from ancient sages in the Indus River Valley. And we can do that even if we have had a problematic teacher that we no longer look to and, and seek. We can see that there has been knowledge that has been passed through that teacher, some of it resonating with us, some of it not, and look, look deeper than that to, to deeper roots. Um, Makes sense. As of, yeah, as of right now, do I have a teacher? And the answer is no, I don't. This year has really been a process of looking 
inward and for me finding finding the guru within within myself do i have people and situations that have taught me things um do i look to even my parents and and my ancestors that have become come before me as teachers and the answer is yes i do see teachable elements in in these different things but do i have one single teacher no yeah um yeah i would definitely echo that sentiment about looking to yourself as the teacher um but my my approach over the the longer term has never really been to um align myself to one loyal relationship of student and teacher and i i think this harkens back to the comment that you made about you know as as students we kind of need to recalibrate constantly and evaluate if this relationship is still serving and and i don't mean that in the sense that like okay i'm done with this teacher i you're no longer good for me it's more about what is my my priority so over the course of my yoga practice i've um i've dabbled you know and and i think there's there's something there to work with for every student is like how much do i want to commit to one path and how much do i want to try different things on but one thing that i always kind of check in with myself on and also remind my students to consider when they're in my workshops or classes is nothing that i say is the absolute gold standard right it's like try this on and if you like it keep it if you don't like it discard it and it's not all or nothing you know there are different elements that may serve you that may resonate so right now i do have one one teacher that i have like a regular relationship with and it's not really even in the yoga space it's a hand balance teacher named Miguel Santana. So, um, you know, I have had teachers that I've really like stuck with for a long time. My my teacher when I was very involved in the in the Bikram method uh, and it was is going into the, like the advanced um series uh Bikram was a woman named Gloria Suen who didn't even consider herself a yoga teacher, but I learned a lot from her, so I considered her a teacher. Um so yeah, I I kind of have moved through different phases. I I really I I hear you on that. I really respect the both of you sharing that and your ability to take kind of take the knowledge where it's where it's appropriate, where it's available. I wonder if both of your backgrounds in prior physical training has somehow kind of maybe put a little bit of a damper on the guru worship aspect that so many spiritual seekers have when they come into yoga like you cuz you you know both have the childhood backgrounds of training physically and i would imagine working with coaches and do you think that that has that impacted kind of the way you look at like a trainer or a teacher that may come in for a period of time and then maybe you upgrade or move on to a different trainer or teacher do you think that impacted you at all yeah i feel like that that might have had an impact um if i look back at at my at my youth and and the different coaches i've had to echo what you said i've definitely gone through phases of w- with with gymnastics okay i've been at this level and then i competed at these levels and now it's time to move on to to a different coach and and change um change my whole training routine and and continue to move in in that way with the with the the gymnastics element and this is kind of a tangent from from the question that you asked it did give me some sort of tactical skill to be able to be in my body um but i will say that i had to unlearn a lot of things that i picked up from gymnastics which was overriding my body not really mm-hmm. listening to my body and that was extremely difficult for me 
with, with yoga because I couldn't let go of, it needs to look this certain way. It needs to be in this certain way. And I would push myself to beyond the point of what my body was really, was really asking for me. So there was a lot of unlearning that had to, that had to happen there. Yeah. I could definitely see, um, practicing many different disciplines and having different coaches for those various disciplines, um, helping to kind of force me into the position of having to um, sample and, and exercise discernment. But I think, I'm not sure what the cause of it is, but I can tell you what sort of the effect is. And that's that I feel that ultimately I have decision-making power. And it's once once you like embrace that, it's really hard to give your power away to somebody else. I think to, to add to that, it's very, I uh, think of something funny that now is funny as I look back on it. But when Henry was um, a student in, in my morning classes in New York, it, traditionally in the Bikram practice, it is, you know, the teacher says something, the students all move together at exactly the speed of even up to the half second and not staying in the posture any longer or any less. And Henry would always move at his own speed and pace. And it was at the time with the teacher that I was then, it was so frustrating to me. And I remember calling him out and be like, Henry, come on, we're, we're done with that posture. It's time to move on. And no matter how many times I said it, he always was really good at staying true to <laughs> what was right for him in that moment. <laughs> That's awesome. Sorry. I love that. No, I love that. I also love the, the old stories. That's so cool because, you know, there's going to be someone listening out there who is the slower person, say, if they're doing like a hot yoga class or an Ashtanga class, and they're going to feel permission to, oh, maybe I can go a little slower. I mean, for me, I, I, I think because of the, even though the Ashtanga tradition is really rigorous, we do this style called Mysore style, you know, where you come in and you do mm -hmm. it at your own pace. So there is this room to do it at your own pace. And then we have guided classes you're supposed to be, as you described, very much on the count in guided classes. And I'm very much someone who's always late for the count. And I'm always just like a little bit, I'm trying, and I always go as, as fast as I can while respecting my own body. But, you know, occasionally my teacher would yell at me, but I think after a while, they're just like, okay. But then it's more the other students that are like, hey, Kino, you're slowing everyone down. You speed up so we don't have to hold this wretched posture while you breathe and tune into whatever's going on for you. So then, you know, it's interesting, right? So here's what, like my experience when I started yoga. When I first started practicing yoga, I came into the practice as a spiritual discipline. And so I had no physical training whatsoever. I was never a dancer. I was never a gymnast. If you put me on a dive board, I would cling to it for my life and <laughs> like try to get a helicopter rescue. And, you know, uh, so when, when I, there were all these asanas I couldn't do in the beginning. And there were some teachers at the time who I think were kind of trying to be their own spiritual gurus and me not knowing, I, I was genuinely interested in the spiritual journey. And I would get answers from people like, oh, you can't do that posture because your your uh, root chakra is blocked oh you can't mm. do that asana because your kundalini hasn't risen when your kundalini rises then you'll be able to lift up and i was and i remember feeling like really because i hadn't they never worked with a, like a physical coach or anything i was like maybe they're right i don't know like, and then they would just follow me and i'll teach you how to open your first chakra and I'll open that mm -hmm. up for you. And that I think really creates a cycle of abuse and really opens up the possibility for abuse. And there were, in fact, there was in fact some abuse that happened in situations exactly like that. And 
I feel like people that come in like with a really open heart and some naivete in the yoga world, they're like the most susceptible to these kind of quasi gurus that are appropriating the knowledge of yoga for really kind of heinous ends. And so I think it's a really important discussion that we're having about listening to the body and keeping agency. And the more that's in the forefront, the more newer students listen to that. I think that kind of like the more, the more safe space the yoga world can become, you know? So I was reading, um, Veronica, what you posted recently on your Instagram, where you said that you had realized that not all yoga spaces were safe for you. That in fact, it was really challenging for you, as you wrote, inhabiting a brown body to go into spaces that were, you know, kind of like white dominated and you were teaching. There was a schism about that. Would you mind kind of like sharing a little bit more about that and what that was like for you? And I, I would imagine that probably no one even realized that there was any impact on you. You were probably just showing up and teaching an awesome class, but I think if people could really hear what your, what your lived experience was, I think that would be really, really awesome. Yeah. Um, thanks for, for noticing and for, for bringing it up. I, you know, I've shared a lot about my mental health journey online and the different phases of it. And I did not realize the connection for me between mental health and race until this year. And as I mentioned, I was, you know, 15 when I started being challenged by this. I'm I'm 34 now. So it's been a very long, long journey. And on that journey, I had started a yoga asana practice. I'd started more spiritual sadhana. I've been in therapy. I've been on and off medication. I've changed my diet. I've done many different things, but the component of race just, I didn't even think about it and what that, what the effect was until, until this year. And if I look back to when I started becoming more depressed and more having more self-hatred and and self-harm, at the time, I was a teenage girl at a school that was wealthy, predominantly white, and I had spent most of my upbringing being around other people of color. And I didn't even realize that that shift that, that had happened. And so I feel like, you know, for me, I didn't even realize how activated my nervous system was being in predominantly white spaces because I had not made that mental connection as, as, as a child. And even when I started seeing mental health professionals, race was not something that was even brought up. Um, and so I didn't really, and as being a, a child of immigrants, I didn't really feel like it was even something that I could even bring up. My parents had sacrificed their entire lives to be in this country, to give my, my sisters and I this, this opportunity to have a lives that they, and opportunities that they had never, never had. And so with this connection of, of mental health and race and understanding and, and really coming to a point of clarity of, I am in a brown body in, in a white, predominantly white space and asking myself, what are the things that are that are actually bothering me and and you know being away from those spaces actually this year and having this practice at home real allowed me to tune into oh this is what safety feels like in my body wow i'm i'm living my life 
off of medication. I'm living my life off of Ativan. And this is, I can actually breathe and feel comfortable and safe within myself. And I think that for, for me, as if I'm really tying it back to my, my personal experience of, of, of being in those, those positions, it's kind of, it's a little bit difficult to, to put into words because I do feel that I am still very much in, in process with it, but it's all, it's kind of like even just seeing a lot of people that look a certain way is very activating. Like if I'm, if I'm the only person of color, I, I know that I would like be in a space and look around to see, are there any other people of color that are there? And these are things that I, I'm like, oh, I'm looking back and these are things that I did. And if I saw at least one other person of color there, then I would kind of feel this sense of safety, like, oh, this is an okay place for, for me to be. I can breathe e easier. Um, and yeah, it's still very much something that I, that I'm unpacking. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing. I mean, I was really touched by what you wrote on Instagram where you would actually take um, an Ativan before teaching just to kind of maintain a sense of calm before teaching. And I, I would imagine that the people who were running those spaces where you were teaching probably had no idea, you know, that you just showed up and put on this model face and inside there's this feeling of turmoil. But that's very much the reality of mental health. You know, I, 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 we've talked about this before. I, I've struggled with depression since I was nine years old. And sometimes when people hear that from me, they're like, really? I had no idea. But you're always smiling and you always do everything. I, that's weird. I'm like, yeah, the process is often internal. And it's not really socially appropriate in the moment when you're showing up for your work to, you know, kind of just put all of that out there. From the outside looking in, I know that my husband has had some difficult times supporting me in moments where I've been in intense, intense crisis. And this is kind of like an untold story about mental health issues as it affects like families and relationships. And like Tim went, my husband, Tim, he went to a therapist to talk to a therapist about sort of like, how do I show up in this relationship when she's in a, in a dark period? So Henry, maybe from your perspective, like how, like how's, how's that been for you from, you know, watching your wife go through these ups and downs and, and, and sort of processing these very deep roots of some of the issues that she's been sitting with. Yeah. Yeah. And it definitely affects more than just the person who's directly affected. You might even say that I'm directly affected by it because, you know, we're, we're linked. We live our lives together. We're energetically linked. We're, you know, physically linked. Um, and I've gone through a whole range of emotions around it myself. You know, there have been times that it's been frustrating for me. And I think it's important to acknowledge that and try to not, I can't pretend that I'm like at this moral high ground where it's always going to be, it's easy for me to be supportive and, and nurturing, but that's what I'm trying to do. And I've learned a lot along the process because, you know, Veronica has gone through a lot of different, um, phases with it. And I think that you're in a better place now than probably any other time in our relationship, which is amazing and has taken a lot of work. Uh, and I'm very proud of you for that. Um, but in the beginning, I had no idea what I was doing, you know, and I would, I think at the very beginning, sometimes I would just try to like rationalize you out of it. And what I learned very quickly is that doesn't work. Um, I think the most important thing that one can do as a partner to someone who is experiencing mental health challenges is just to be there, be open, be receptive, and be a listener. Because sometimes 
that's really all the other person needs to do is have someone that they can speak to about it and get it outside of their internal system. But kind of like Tim or what you're suggesting Tim has, has gone through is it, it's actually kind of opened me up to more emotional internal work in a way, because without getting too into it um, right now, I mean, I recognize certain patterns about like our relationship as my relationship with my mother, for example. I mean, she really struggled with depression for as long as I can remember. And um, yeah, I mean, I don't, I'm not, I'm not a Freudian scholar, but I'm sure there's something there and it, and it leads me to question, okay, what is it about um, this sort of dynamic that I'm trying to like resolve in my own personal being? Such important questions. I, I think for everyone, you know, whether, whether or not their partner is struggles with mental health issues, these core, these, these core patterns of our relations with our parents and our attachment you know, pattern that we that we cultivate when we're pre-verbal, I think are so important patterns for everyone really to work out. So here's a here's another question in regards to mental health, especially if you're uh, someone who's struggling with mental health issues, who's listening. First of all, there is support out there, and the the second thing is, if you yourself are struggling or you're you're with someone who's struggling, when is it appropriate to seek professional help? And when is it appropriate to sit with it yourself? When is it appropriate to, you know, look for alternative means of treatment versus when you might need more conventional means of treatment? You know, how do you how do you navigate that space to make sure that someone who's struggling with mental health issues doesn't engage in irreparable acts of self-harm? You have the answer for that? Do you want to go first? <laughs> well, I mean, first I'll have to say that I'm I'm neither medically nor legally uh, like qualified to to give a firm answer on that. But the way that I I think about it is um, certainly I don't think anybody should try to manage um, tapering of medication on their own. I think that's something that seems very appealing about Veronica's story um, is that she was on SSRIs and um, benzodiazepines for for so many years, and now she's been able to. Um, successfully withdraw herself from that. And unfortunately, um, you know, these, these medications were studied in such a way that the pharmaceutical companies that, that created them were not really concerned about figuring out how to get people off, um, which is, you know, a bigger problem that it, it, we could have a whole podcast about that probably. But um, because of that, there, there are no standard protocols for how one goes about um, getting, getting off of them. So it took a lot of uh, expert guidance from naturopaths who are, you know, kind of like blazing the trail on their own, but um, definitely the sort of thing that I don't think Veronica would have been comfortable doing on her own. I personally would not have been comfortable with her doing that on her own. So um, th that's one sort of caveat I'll put out there. Yeah. And to, I guess, go back to your question, Kino, of if there is someone who is listening and who is struggling, where, where do you begin? And I do feel that that is a personal, that depends on each, each person. There's so many, there's one destination, right? It, that all of us want, which is this having mental, physical, emotional, spiritual health and, and, and well-being. And there are different paths and roads to get to that point. Um, I would, if I look back at my experience 
you know, when I started self-harming, the first thing that I did was I took to the internet and Google didn't exist then. I feel like it must have been Yahoo. And I remember having the agency to just, or even ask Jeeves, I remember having the agency to research at 15 years old, you know, depression and self-harm. And what I found on the internet at that time was a lot of clinical articles written by white women. And I remember searching and I was like, where are the people that are not from a clinical standpoint that have actually been through this, that have seen the light and what can I learn from this, from this experience? And I remember saying and, and kind of praying and saying like, okay, God, if you help me to get through this and if I live to be this, if I live at the time, it was like, if I lived to 25, I promise that I will share what I have learned with others. And if I look back at that time, I kept it, I was such in such a point of shame that I kept it a secret for a few years. And it wasn't until the people around me started seeing the cuts on my arms and noticing things and really urging me to speak to my parents and to seek professional mental health. And if it weren't for those people around me who had said, hey, I care about you, um, I urge you to, to do this, would I have kept it a secret for longer? Probably. Um, and so I feel, you know, now there's so many different resources out there. If you do not feel comfortable even speaking to someone audibly, there is therapy available through, through text. And now there's a, a website, Inclusive Therapist, which has many different price points and many different um, people of color, therapists and, and therapists that might resonate with you, which was a lot difficult to find then. I remember even after I spoke to my mom, we, got, we had a printout of, of therapists that were available with our insurance. There was no photo. There was just like a name and a number. And I had to just call and see who was available and taking, taking new patients. Um, when is it appropriate to seek professional mental health? There, that's such a multifaceted, there, there's, there's layers to that. I would say if you are if you have already had a yoga practice, if you're doing all these other methods, you know, changing your diet and there's still something that is, is off, you know, if you are still feeling like having difficulty waking up in the day and even just making it through, through, through an hour, um, then I would say that is, that is a time to, to seek, to seek professional mental health. And thankfully now, like I said, there's so many different types of therapists out there. There are therapists who, um, also offer, and I have a friend who, who is a therapist, Latinx, Latinx therapist, who also offers indigenous practices and weaves that into, into her practice. You know, my, my therapist now specifically focuses on first and second generation Asian American women, and she also has a spiritual background, and that's really woven into the work together. And I sought her out because I was looking for someone who had experienced in helping people going through spiritual emergencies, which is something that happened when I when I got off the medication. And so for anyone who's listening, I want you to know that you have so much to offer in the world and there is no one like you that has incarnated in this time and, and space and there is, is help out there. Um, 
And as long as you, you know, have the, if you can just ask for help and have the agency to ask for help, then I, I do feel that there, you will be led to whoever is meant to help you at this time. And, and that agency could be, as you said, a prayer, you know, it, yeah. it, it's as simple as making the choice within yourself. Because I, I, when I was listening to you speak right now, I was deeply touched on many levels. So thank you for sharing. And then I also thought, gosh, in this past year, you know, how many young people are out there depressed, even more depressed, more anxious without connection of a friend who would be able to notice that they were cutting themselves. And then to be able to say, hey, and I, you know, I think you like, please talk to your parents because now the they're taking, you know, a selfie and then editing out everything that doesn't look appealing. And we're missing that human to human contact. So I feel like if, if we have people that are in our lives that we know are, you know, struggling in some capacity, those casual texts now I feel mean so much more just to send a little text to your friend. Hey, how's it going? Thinking of you. Hey, I'm here. Just want to let you know. Because those, that creates a little opening for someone to say, I'm having a bad day. Oh, hey. And then, you know, you can be there for someone. It could change someone's life, you know? And then the second thing I want to dive into, which is a phrase that I haven't heard before, is the phrase spiritual emergency. What is a spiritual emergency? What is that? That you said you experienced that after you went, um, you know, went off of the medication. Yeah. And it was, it was something that I did not have the verbiage or the words for either. And the last time we spoke, I was really in, in the midst, uh, midst, midst of that. So um, like Henry said, I had had professional help and it took me a year to taper off of this medication in addition to supplement help and, and changing my diet and, and doing a lot of other inner work. And I had been on medication for about 15 years. When I came off of the medication completely, I noticed that I became, I was already highly sensitive and intuitive, empathic. And when I got off the medication, those sensitivities heightened to a new level. And I would just, I would define spiritual emergency as when the process of spiritual awakening happens at such a rapid speed that the physical body has difficulty catching up to the spiritual body, the emotional body. And it can be also seen as a, as a healing crisis. So what that looked like for me was at the time we were living in in Brooklyn, New York, and um, I started to get even more anxious being in this dense urban environment. And it really hit a height when we went to Vipassana. And to be to full disclosure, when I applied for Vipassana, I did disclose my mental health history and they responded back and I uh, and said you know this you may be uh, very uncomfortable these feelings may may come up are you prepared for this and I at the time was like yes I've been through so many difficult experiences and I I am okay sitting with this discomfort and I'm and I'm ready for this but what I wasn't prepared for was how I was not going to have my yoga practice, how my daily mantra practice, my sadhana 
was going to be asked to put aside. I wouldn't have the ability to read or to write down, which is something that helps me to regulate my nervous system and also express all this energy that I'm that I'm feeling and that I'm processing. And when we were at Vipassana on the the fourth day, I was downloaded the experiences of my ancestors in the Philippines being killed and hunted in the jungle. And that was really overwhelming for me. I was shaking no matter how much I was breathing. I could not bring myself back to this, this dimension and this place. And Henry and I ended up having to, to leave the center. And um, that was you know, that was extremely difficult on, on both of us. And I had to relearn how to, to navigate the world without the medication and bring myself back to this grounded place in, in my body. Um, and it was like, you know, I was having a lot of visions and it was, I could not sleep. It was almost as if, you know, the Kundalini energy had just skyrocketed. Um, and so that really has, that was that is how I would describe spiritual emergency, and that has informed why I am now uh, working as a as a coach for highly sensitives because I do see yeah. that there are things that I that I did not learn from my yoga practice and from from traditional mental health care that I do feel is is necessary to to address in in managing subtle energy. And I see you're starting a course on that soon. Is that right? Yes. I, um, I just announced that I'm enrolling women of color for a, an eight-week group coaching program. And I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but it's Radiant. You're allowed to say it. Okay. okay. <laughs> it's called Radiant Bitch, and it's an eight-week group coaching program for highly sensitive women of color. Nice. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Wonderful. So I want to switch gears just a little bit because I feel like many people watching maybe uh, follow either both of you or maybe at least you, Henry, on Instagram. And when, you know, people see your practice, I think they just see this like perfect human being that can just do any asana in any form and just are, are sort of overwhelmed with you know, just how talented you are and speaking with you also, then there's this flip side of just, you know, how nice and how humble you are on the other side, on the other side as sort of a real human being. So for people who might see these images of a perfect handstand or, you know, a perfect backbend, and then they feel intimidated about coming to your class. What can people expect if they come practice with you? Are they going to feel like I'm the ugly duckling in the corner and here's the handstand master and let me hide my face? Or what, like, what can they expect? Um, I certainly hope that that's not the experience that people have in my class. It's <laughs> definitely not the one I'm trying to cultivate. Um, first of all, thank you. Everything you said is very flattering. I appreciate it. Um, but I guess what I would, how I would reframe all of that is that, and people say this sort of thing all the time, but it, it's not about the perfection of any of these forms or even the perfection of something like your personality, if, if we're going to go that, that way. Um, but for me, it's always about striving for improvement. 
And I, and I know that that could even be sort of a polarizing idea in yoga because we need to be supportive of ourselves no matter how we show up. And maybe today, you know, you feel worse than yesterday. And I think that's okay. But, but for me, my orientation is always around improvement because I think that that's something that, that yoga is really um, well suited for is giving you something to work toward. And that is, that is the reason why you see my practice, my physical practice, the way that it looks is because I've always really latched onto that more so than like the perfect backbend or the perfect handstand. I've really um, attached myself um, maybe to the point of detriment around how can I incrementally improve? So my classes are, are, are very much about that. It's very, very specific detail. My cues are, are very precise. Um, you know, to, to the point that people who have that kind of inclination will like it. And people who do not probably won't like my class. Um, a very fine tuned, uh, precise language. And of course, I always give room for modification and certainly never judge anyone who's not able to do what I do. Um, yeah, hopefully that answers the question. I think to add to that, like Henry, loves he just loves practicing and he never really gets upset with himself for not being able to do something i've watched him during our whole quarantine time training one arm handstand and there are often times where he's falling and um it's not very it's not very pretty and he's been working with with his teacher for six months and i think I don't know how long, yeah, six, six months. months. And like just now he is able to do a one arm handstand on the wall, but he had to be at a point of, of training and doing all these, these other things. Yeah. It's just like in Vipassana patiently, persistently, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's like, like Veronica said, it's six months in, I'm just now allowed to take my arm up off the ground, been on fingertips, just doing these tiny little, you have to get super interested in the very subtle changes. That's what keeps practice exciting for me. It's like, okay, there's a little bit different um, experience right now. Um, and if it's always about, I'm not going to be happy until I can do the back bend and grab my ankles, then first of all, you're never going to get there. And second of all, even if you did, the whole process would be miserable. You have to like really enjoy these, these little micro wins in order for it to be sustainable, I think. Now, did you have to train your mind to be focused like that? Or was that somehow like a natural capacity of yours? I think that it is developed over the course of my yoga practice, but I probably came in with maybe an above average kind of like a tendency toward that kind of thing. Um, when I grew up, I like, I, I studied classical violin and I did a lot of things that, you know, don't really get a lot, don't necessarily get external validation. Like I was a, I was a swimmer, you know, that's not like football quarterback. It's something that you have to show up every morning at, at, 4am for practice and nobody even knows about this other life that you have before you get to school. So I think some of that translated for sure. And focusing on the, the subtlety of the small disciplines paying off many months or years down the road. So yes. what often creates frustration instead, instead of inspiration for many yoga students is that all they focus on is how far they have to go, how far they are away from the goal when they try what a failure felt like. So I love this idea of, uh, you know, as, as you described, focusing on the small shifts, whether that's a small shift physically 
or if it's someone who's practicing more for the spiritual journey, the small shifts in the inner worlds, you know, mentally and emotionally as well. Mm -hmm. And I think both of your stories are, are just super inspirational along, along that regards. And, um, you know, uh, I, I, unless you have anything both to add, I think it's a wonderful place to leave people for, you know, it's just a little bit of inspiration to find that little bit percentage deeper and better each day. You know, I'll just add one, one more thing that I, that I heard my hand balance teacher, Miguel say at one point when I first practiced with him, he saw one of the other people in the program, like getting frustrated and like throwing his phone down on the ground because he didn't hit his set or whatever. And he just, he stopped the whole group. He's like, everybody sit down. We need to talk. And he said, when, when you get to the point that you can do everything that I'm doing, you're going to realize that the moment that you're in right now is what it was all about. It's boring when you can do everything. This is it. And I think that that, um, that approach, that mentality can bring you so much benefit in all aspects of your life, not just your yoga practice, this is infusing yoga into everything. How, how can you enjoy this process, including all of the frustration and the challenges? Make that mental reframe, and then you have like unlimited energy for the thing that you want to do. I absolutely love that. You know, and to, to, you know, some people might look at you and say, oh, but you can do everything now, you know, and some people I know say that to me too, but you can do everything. I'm like, no, no, there's still so much I have to work on. Yeah. So to recognize so that. I feel like it can really be a lifelong practice, even though, you know, it's not, as you've mentioned, it's not necessarily about the attainment of more and more asanas, but it's that constant inner journey to keep that spark of inspiration alive is what can create the longevity of, of the practice, whether it's a spiritual practice or, you know, a sadhana of some type. Otherwise, you know, we stop after we put the leg behind the head. Check, I've done it. No, let's do something new, you know, no, it's not that the leg is behind the head. And then there's something to feel in the hip joint. And then there's an emotional response. And then the leg doesn't want to go behind the neck head the next day. And that's an experience on its own. And then we all just keep practicing. I feel like to, to add to what you both have said of how can I enjoy this along the way? How can I enjoy this, this journey? Another thing to add is also how can I have compassion for myself along this journey, as I move through the highs and the lows and all of the challenging moments, how can I love myself enough and, and really be gentle and compassionate with myself and my body and where I'm at um, through all of this? That is also an, an important thing. Yeah, I think this is the, um, what you often hear in Buddhist teachings described as sort of like two wings that lift up the, the practice. And sometimes it's called, you know, um, wisdom and compassion. Sometimes it's called, you know, uh, compassion and discipline so that we have these kind of uh, opposing forces, which kind of uh, actually unite and create a whole experience of practice, which is interesting. That kind of brings us full circle to the duality that we were talking about at the very beginning of our talk today where we talked about how people kind of search for absolutes, either this or that, when in actuality, maybe it is more of a, you know, path to find those, those the, the unification of polarizing forces or extreme forces or just opposites within ourselves. So, yeah, I just thank you. I want to just take a moment and thank you both so much. Um, where can people find you? Uh, if you want to give everyone your websites, if someone wants to sign up for your course, um, and Henry, if people want to take your classes on OMSTARS or wherever you want to mention, that'd be awesome. So please take a moment and just tell everyone where they can find you. Sure. Thank you so much for, uh, for having us on, first of all. Um, you can find all my stuff online. 
henrywins.com and on Instagram at henrywins. It's my name just without the last three letters. And Veronica? And for me, you can find me on my website, which is kaluluwa.co. Kaluluwa means soul or spirit in, in Tagalog. And I'm also on Instagram at kaluluwako. Would you spell that for everyone, please? Yeah, it's I actually I'm going to type it because it's easier for me to to look at. It's K-A-L-U-L-U-W-A dot C-O. And if anyone who's listening is like, yes, that's me. I'm, I'm also highly sensitive. If you go on my website, you can download a, a free meditation for um, energy clearing for highly sensitives. Awesome. No, thank you so much. And I just send you both lots of love and really appreciate you coming on for this, uh, this talk and the first um, live talk that we did here on OMSARS. So again, just thank you. Thank you. Thank I think you. it was a success. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks so, so much, Kino. <laughs> Super. Lots of love. See you soon. Hi. Hi, it's Veronica. I want to acknowledge the privilege I've had in having access to the yoga practice and to mental health care. I realize how blessed and how fortunate I am and how everyone unfortunately has not had access to those same opportunities. If you're in crisis, please reach out to someone. And if you have the resource, please reach out to a mental health professional. You can call 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255 to reach a 24-hour crisis center or you can text MHA to 741741. I made the decision to taper off medication with the help of a medical professional. And I'm also grateful for how medication has helped and served me. Me sharing my story isn't a judgment on anyone who's currently on or thinking of taking psychotropic medication. What has worked for me may or may not work for you. And I truly believe that there are many ways and roads to get to a destination of mental, physical, emotional, spiritual health. Wherever you are in your journey, please know that you are never alone. And as Ramdas says, we're all just walking each other home. Hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find the full-length videos on my online channel, OMSTARS, and that's at www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, I'd absolutely be honored if you'd check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat. And I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit, which is the true heart of the yoga method. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love. Namaste.